Hello and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform for people to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this episode interesting. Hi, Alison. Hello, Grace. This is very strange, isn't it? Really, really weird. I'm used to sitting next to you, not seeing you on a screen opposite me. But. Absolutely. You with your funky headphones and your new microphone that you've had to buy specially. Yeah, well, I'm very professional. Can't just uh, can't just piggyback off your equipment anymore, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's very exciting. Mm. It's, a, it's incredible that we can still do this despite, you know, lockdown. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad this is happening in this day and age with the technology that we have. It's uh, it's very helpful. How uh, How's lockdown treating you, Alison? Well, it's strange, obviously, and um, and there are some not great elements. Um, my sister had a baby last week and <sighs> hospital on her own for days after having a C-section, which was just awful. I mean, oh, no. being on your own in that situation I mean the midwives were great but yeah just appalling absolutely appalling the baby had jaundice so she couldn't come home it was awful awful for her awful for everybody yeah um, I really feel for people I don't I it only occurred to me a few days ago what it must be like for people having babies right now I think there are lots of different individual experiences aren't there that we don't think about because it's not our current experience um and and then suddenly you think, oh, yeah, imagine this happening or imagine that you've just moved house the day before lockdown. And you've got no furniture in or, you know, all of these different things. Um, and obviously there are far worse things happening to people. And I don't want to um, I don't want to diminish any of that. But so many experiences going on, so many different um, heartbreaks, I suppose, in in various different ways, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely absolutely it's a very difficult situation for so many people not not only here of course in um, in britain but um but across the world people are in in terrible situations you know when you see what's going on in in india it's just terrifying it must be absolutely terrifying mm. we're so fortunate to be in houses where we can actually be isolated absolutely yeah and, and i i my husband and i both do jobs where we can work from home quite easily um and we did before so we've got a setup for that but people who can't work from home you know what what do you do and um yeah it's just so many tragedies and so many difficult situations going on um but yes very grateful that we can still podcast together yeah. <laughs> we hope you're all staying safe and um and well yes yeah so shall we move on to talking about our interview, Alison? Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> uh, you interviewed this time, you interviewed Sharon Prentice. How was that? It was lovely. She's a very, very lovely, warm, gentle person. Um, she's the She works for Church of England, Birmingham. She's our first Church of England person that we've interviewed. What about that? Um, uh, which is, I'm saying that because it's weird, because we're both... Church of England, and um, and yet we've gone elsewhere. <laughs> Trying to be diverse, aren't we? <laughs> we are. Um, and uh, she's the intercultural mission enabler as part of a job. Uh, and then she's also Dean of Black and Minority Ethnic Affairs, which is a very long title, and she explains it in the interview. Sounds very important. Well, Sharon, thank you for speaking to us on the Recovering God podcast. And um, I wonder if you could start by just telling us a bit about yourself, who you are, a bit about your history and, you know, anything you want to tell us. My name's Sharon Prentice. I am the Mission Intercultural Mission Enabler and Dean of Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic Affairs for the Diocese of Birmingham. And I've been in this job for around two years now, and it's a very long title, but what it means basically is that we look at mission across the churches, and we ask ourselves the question, who's missing from church? So in terms of ethnicity, 
and other areas of diversity. So older people, younger people, people who live with disabilities, people that come from a variety of backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. We are intentional about saying this is God's church Mm. and it should be representative of all God's people. So that's one half of my job. The other half of my job um, is looking at um, predominantly black, Asian and minority ethnic population and how do we as a church strive to talk about some of those issues that are fairly difficult. Mm. So in terms of our leadership, why aren't we seeing people of colour in our leadership and why are certain churches made up of predominantly one background Mm. and the leadership might look differently. So we are being prepared to ask those really difficult questions about what does it mean to be church? Wow. (laughs) Okay, great. Anything else you want to tell us about yourself? So um, I'm from Yorkshire. Very good. um, I'm a Leeds girl and been in ministry with my husband for over 20 years. Wow. So ordained about 10 years ago. But before then, I taught at university. I taught sociology and community development studies. So I see myself as a community person Mm. um, and feel very strongly that the church should be involved in the community. I also am a mother, which is really important to me, and a sister, and hopefully I'm a good friend. Excellent. That's really lovely. So um, one of the questions we always ask is, would you call yourself a Christian feminist and why or why not? Now, I think that's a really interesting question because the answer to that is yes and no, Mm. (laughs) just to be a little contentious. No, you're not alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in the respect that I do believe that women have a predominant role to play Mm. and their voices should be heard and that we have to recognise that women have been marginalised and oppressed within the church. Mm. Um, No, because... um, The people that often purport to speak on my behalf Mm. are white women. And so the black experience is often missing from some of that Christian feminist literature and perspective. Mm. And and as a black British born, a black woman who is a minister uh, and who has done quite a number of things, my perspective isn't there often. And so we can't say that... Christian feminists speak on my behalf. Mm. I also live with a long-term condition. So, again, from somebody coming from that perspective mm. as well, mm. um, that that's often missing. So I call myself a womanist. Yes. <laughs> Would you like to define that for us? We've had this before. Ah. Now, um, it usually comes from an African-American perspective. Yeah. But it can be defined much more broadly as a much more collective perspective Mm. that recognises the multiple oppressions Mm. that women in particular Mm. experience. Mm. So for me, it's about saying, okay, the voice of my experience is recognised and allowed to be communicated Mm. in that context. Mm. So whereas Christian feminism can predominantly come from a white uh, background, mm. uh, a womanist perspective recognises the global uh, experience of women of colour uh, and women who experience disability and women who might be economically marginalised or experiencing violence and locates what does the church say about it, but more importantly, what do we learn through the Bible about these various experiences mm, mm. that can speak to us today? Mm, that's really helpful. And Grace and I are very keen to try and make sure that we include everybody. Mm. But um, we're both, you know, white British women, um, and that, that's, we're very aware of that. Do you think there's a way... Uh, this has got nothing to do with your book or anything else we're going to talk about, but I just think about it. Do you think there's a way of us working 
together as women to to break down those barriers that we have between us that they shouldn't be there but they are there yeah. so mm-hmm. you know do you you kind of see that there's a way forward with that it's a bit like the elephant in the room um, for me it's about having honest conversations so asking questions really important listening to one another's stories and being able to honestly you know converse about so what does this mean for you and am I assuming a role here or am I stereotyping or is there a power dynamic between us that we need to both kind of acknowledge Mm. Um, and so I think there is that conversation Mm. and the listening Mm. but I think there's also the asking the questions so if we see um, at in churches or in leadership number of white women we should be asking, so where are the women of colour? Where are their voices or mm. their experiences mm. or their interpretation of scripture? Mm. Why aren't we hearing their theologies mm. as well? Mm. So there's a number of things that we can do mm. to enable a much wider uh, perspective to be included within the sort of female sort of understanding of what's going on. Brilliant. Thank you. That's helpful. Right, okay, so um, let's just move on to your book. So you've edited a book called Mm -hmm. Every Tribe, Mm -hmm. Stories of Diverse Saints Serving a Diverse World. So please, can you just tell us about what the book's about and Mm -hmm. why you've you've edited it? Mm -hmm. One of the things that became apparently obvious to um, me growing up was that there weren't that many saints of colour around if you looked at our stained glass windows there were people you know you saw saint george for example with a dragon or you saw the apostles but you didn't see many people of color and you Mm. didn't see many women and it was a question that was asked of a colleague of mine by her five-year-old granddaughter where she said um she looked up and she said so where where are the people that look like me a really good, good question. question. Yeah. Really good question. And um, and so my friend told me this and I thought, yeah, if you, growing up in church, you're looking at these beautiful windows and uh, um, imagery, you wouldn't see people like yourself. Mm. You wouldn't hear stories mm. about people like yourself. So I asked a few friends whether they'd be willing to identify somebody that they knew was a person of colour and a holy person um, and whether they'd like to write about them. Wow. And um, gratefully, um, I'm really grateful that few of them said yes. Brilliant. And decided to do that. Excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when I read it, the information about St George completely um, amazed me. Would you just tell us a bit about St George yeah well we often think of St George as a a typically English saint don't we and we celebrate St George's day Mm. and we have these beautiful images of St George often with flaxen hair standing astride a dragon but actually St George's heritage is a Middle Eastern and you know being having a Palestinian background Turkish um, an immigrant as well, and mm. we tend to forget that. Uh, and so, what we do is we adopt saints, and we don't appreciate some of the struggles that they may have had to overcome um, and be othered because of where they have come from. Mm. So, Saint George was a very typical saint for us to speak about because most people don't realise no. um, his background at all. Um, and because he's so associated with being English and quintessentially English uh, that we forget that actually he's come from somewhere else mm. and has been adopted mm. as an English saint. So we felt it was really important to include him in the book. Absolutely. But um, there are other people that we included. Um, for me, I wrote a chapter on Hadrian of Canterbury mm. And I, when I found out about Hadrian, this sixth century saint who came from North Africa and turned down the opportunity to become abbot mm. um, of Canterbury, Archbishop of Canterbury, actually, and then became the abbot of Canterbury. 
but he was an educator uh, with a North African background. And for me, having an African-Caribbean background and, and teaching, that really inspires me mm. that it was his ability as a teacher that really impressed his students, not where he came from. Uh, and, you know, all those things that we sometimes get a little bit hungover on, but his ability to communicate what it was to, um, at that time in 6th century, Britain, what it was to be a person of faith. And that, that's what struck me. Yes, that was, I, when I read that, I was very uh, kind of astounded that he, was it the Pope asked him to be Archbishop? Yeah. And he said, um, mm-hmm. yes, well, he said no. And then he said, so, I will be, but I'll to give me two years yeah, to find somebody, somebody better. Else. And then he did. <laughs> that was fantastic. I was like, wow. That's it's incredible. Modest. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, when I read the the information about St George, I was completely struck by the irony mm. of how the flag is used in our society yeah. as a tool to divide people. Absolutely. This book is a way of redeeming those divisions in some ways, I, I would guess. Have you got any other ways of suggestions of um, redeeming those divisions? Mm. Well, if we read the stories of the saints, mm. you know, people like Inikapuri, um, people like uh, Anakuti book, we start to appreciate that our Christian heritage is much wider than what we think. And we start to understand that we have so much in common yeah. and that holiness isn't about a certain select group of people, but it's about all of us. Mm. And we start to then appreciate that we're made in God's image and that we're uniquely made and that we all have something to bring Mm. our experiences because we identify with not just the experiences of individuals, but that we can share that experience Mm. as well. But I think it's a long work of grace that's required And I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Archbishop of Canterbury recently gave an apology in General Synod about the Windrush affair and the the situation where some churches, some Church of England churches in the 50s kind of turned away some people Mm. who had come over from the Caribbean, who were Anglicans, had gone to Anglican churches and were politely told they would be better served somewhere else. Um, And those incidences still resonate today, over 50 years later. So what Justin Welby did in apologising was an acknowledgement of that, but also an acknowledgement that things still hadn't changed Mm. to some extent. Although people weren't blurt, uh, aren't blatantly turned away now, what still happens is we do not have the same representation in terms of priests, mm. in terms of people in the congregations, mm. uh, in, in, in key places and positions mm. that we should have. And if we think about how the population has grown over that time, we should see much more representation Mm. in the church than we've got now. So we have to ask ourselves the honest question, why aren't we seeing that? Mm. Is it because there are institutional barriers, attitudes, and is there a power dynamic about let's keep the Anglican church in a sort of shape and position that we identify with which may not be reflective of the current experience of current society so those are the questions that we have to ask well yeah thank you that's great um i noticed that the book has no images yes (laughs) is it because there are no uh, accurate images of the saints you know have they just completely been effectively whitewashed Mm. um or have you you know what is there a reason why you didn't put any images in? First of all, because this was such a novel idea for the publishers, 
putting images in would have been really expensive. Okay. <laughs> so there was the practicalities <laughs> of that. Um, but lots of people have said that. Um, and certainly if we go through another a reprint, we will be putting images in. But yes, because it was so new, we could not, you know, the whole copyright with the images yeah, and things yeah, like yeah. that. And ideally, what we would have liked to have done was to have an artist reproduce oh, wow. some of these images. Yeah, yeah. Because it's important for people to see themselves. Yes. Um, and so what people have said to me is that they've gone off and they've gone on to the internet and they've had a look for themselves. Excellent. Which has been really great. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, uh, one of our aspirations would be that we produce something for the schools because we've been asked by schools whether yeah. we can do something yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that would young people would connect with mm. um, and and uh, children in terms of finding out more about a much more diverse range of saints Brilliant. as well. So yeah, yeah. that's a hope yeah, for so, the future. Yeah, so I definitely support if they republish the book, we need pictures. Yes. Because that will help all of us mm-hmm. to go, oh, yeah, and recognise mm-hmm. for those people like me how foolish and um, ignorant, mm-hmm. you know, some of us are. Do you know one one of the things though, Alison, is I I wouldn't be too hard, and I, and this is not excusing some of the terrible things that have happened, but I think what we need to do is move beyond guilt. Mm. And I've never been in all my work. I've worked in um, social sciences and looking at community development over the years. And what I feel paralyzes people is guilt. And so I'm one very much of let's talk about this. Let's get it out on the table. Mm. Let's talk about the things that are between us as cultures and Mm. races Mm. and genders. Mm. And let's try and seek a kind of reconciliation Mm. in all this while acknowledging the power differences, while acknowledging the hurts, Mm. and while lamenting as well. Mm. And for me, that's so important. Mm. Because you don't know what you don't know, Mm. for one. Mm. And secondly, there's something about owning your own um, complicitness Mm. in this Mm. as well. So when I talk to my male colleagues, and when I question them about why are there no women leaders that you know within your church and they well they say well this is how we've always been this is normal Mm -hmm. and I say to them that that's your norm it's not my norm Mm -hmm. it's not a collective norm of half our population Mm -hmm. and so what are we saying to our next generation as well Mm -hmm. so that starts a discussion Mm -hmm. and then I further go on to compound that by saying and so why are there no people of Mm colour in your leadership Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. and they said well, often I hear it's because people of colour don't have confidence. And I usually have to push back on that one. And I'm saying it's not about a lack of confidence. What it is, is about our lack of being intentional mm. and saying, OK, if we are to represent the kingdom of God, and it says in Revelation 7, 9 of every tribe and tongue, mm. Well, why are we having segregated churches Mm. and why are we having leadership that is only from one particular background? We're not asking ourselves those serious Mm. questions at all. So I'm for a conversation. I'm for let's not feel guilty. Let's feel convicted because God uses conviction. Mm. Let's say, what are we going to do about this Mm. together? Excellent. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. Moving on to our our set questions then, Mm -hmm. can you just tell us what your image of God is? Oh, my image of God is just, um, it's just vast. I think as I'm getting older, it's expanded over the years. And one thing that really struck me a few years ago was, do you remember the book The Shack? Yes. And you remember God? Yes. (laughs) What God looked like? And I remember thinking, well, I've known that all along. (laughs) And my image of God, and you know, there are there's theologies about whether we should be imposing certain ways of God and, and making God a sort of um, anthropomorphism um, from our own human perspective. Mm. 
But my image of God is very much led by what's in the Bible, this, this mother as well, mm. as father, mm. um, this wonderful, all-encompassing love. Um, I've recently started reading Julian of Norwich again. Wow. Yes. And that is blows your mind. Yeah. Um, divine revelations of love. And again, she talks very much about the passions of Christ and being birthed um, into Christ and Christ birth, being birthed in us, and this image of God as mother. Mm. Um, and when I think about all the women that I've managed to have the great privilege of um, coming into connection with, that I see God in those connections, mm. the divine-ness mm. of God in that. But I know God as being something that also can't be captured mm by our human descriptions and our human ways of being, mm. um, but is intensely part and a reflection of some of those aspects as well. Mm. So I don't know if that answers the question, I'm not sure, but it's just, you know, God isn't white, God doesn't have a beard, and God isn't necessarily in the way that we see God, but mm. is part of all that and none of that yeah so the mystic side of me and I'm very much into mysticism Mm. and I think Christian mysticism is starting to come back Mm. um that our language and our metaphors and our mind can't capture all of those so with that in mind what do you call God well God is God yes um you know uh, um God is father, God is mother, um, God is um, my heart. Um, in terms of verbally calling God, I do, I do go by saying God, but there's also uh, love. Um, and I think there's something about audibly calling God a name, but there's also about living and breathing God mm. and being kind of enveloped in mm. God that goes beyond just verbalising it. Um, the name, I call it the name, but there's something about a tangible relationship. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. And so our language limits in some respects, but in other respects, the fact that we say God isn't limited to this mm. and is so much more multidimensional than we can ever mm. say. So again, I'm not sure if that answers no, that. No, that's great. But I think that's about entering into the mystery. Yes, absolutely. So final question. Mm-hmm. What do you think the most important issue affecting Christian women is today? That we cannot be defined by the images that are external mm. whether they be through social media through our values mm. through the way that um, relationships are socially configured and i mean the wider relationships between society um, and those larger organizations we cannot be just defined by that mm. i think it's really important for us to have a clear idea about our identity. So identity is a huge issue. And identity starts with loving ourselves Mm -hmm. and loving each other and being um, a force together to resist some of that stuff. So resist it in the church. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important that we resist it and we Mm -hmm. do it in ways Mm -hmm. that speak to um, the the power that tries to marginalise us. Mm. So there's something about us inhabiting roles of reconciliation and peace, but also being disruptive. And I, I use that word, and I really feel that even if you look biblically at women, they were disruptive mm. um, in ways that challenge the status quo. Mm. I recently read about, uh, I was reading Colossians, and in chapter 4 of Colossians, Paul writes about 
please give my greetings to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. And I'm reading this and I'm really shocked that I did not realise there was an individual in chapter four called Nympha and the church that met in her house. And I thought, how did I miss this (laughs) after all these years? And so it is about resisting continually the the temptation to shape us and put us into boxes Mm. and saying that actually we're made in God's image and God is far bigger, Mm. as I alluded to earlier, than what we can think or imagine. And therefore we are called to transcend some of the boundaries. And if we don't, if we don't do that, Mm. then... You know, we actually set something for the next generation that isn't health. And that doesn't talk about the love of God Mm. and the freedom that God gives us. Mm. So, yeah, the issue of identity and belonging, the issue of being uh, purposely disruptive and to challenge is something that we need to embrace. Right behind you. (laughs) Maybe I should say right beside you. Hey, that's great. And I have to say that some of our greatest allies are men as well. Mm. Men who mm. really get this, mm. who are discerning and open and full of love mm. and joyous and who recognise the role of women in their lives mm. um, and who see as as being part of the interdependent community of God. And so one of the things that I'm very keen on uh, conveying is that when we talk about fellowship, we tend to say, oh yes, that word koinonia and fellowship equates, but it doesn't just mean that. Mm. It means participation in and participation with. Mm. So we participate together in what it means to be a community of faith Mm. And we participate with one another. And that means we have to be interdependent. Mm. We have to be humble mm. and we have to give up power. Mm. And that's very hard for us to do yes, as humans. Quite. <laughs> quite, it absolutely is. Well, thank you for speaking to us on Recovering God podcast. Mm. And um, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you. so much in that interview Alison um firstly isn't she fantastic she's lovely absolutely lovely really lovely and you can you can tell she's a teacher I think because she's so clear in how she presents quite complicated and quite difficult topics um so yeah you can tell that she she's a teacher and used to all of that I loved when she was talking about her job and what she does that she talked about the question of she has to look at who is missing from church. Mm. And I think that's an amazingly big question to ask um, and something we all need to be asking and looking around our own congregations, isn't it? Who's missing here? And it's so hard to notice who's missing, especially if you are the majority in your church. What Mm. did you think about that? Yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, I've I've been on some some training that she's done, which is how I met her in the first place, and it was like having my eyes opened in a new way. It was incredible. And talking about not just kind of being aware of other people, but actually starting the need to start to actually integrate properly, um, which we just don't really do. We stay in our own little bubbles, don't we? It was it was great challenge. I was I, when I went on her training. I was like, "Wow, this is incredible. We really need to start tackling this stuff." Mm. And her answers to, or sort of the ways that she suggested that we can, I guess, integrate more and uh, tackle some of the difficult questions in our churches, are really simple things. Like she just says, listening to one another's stories. Mm. That sounds so simple, but. I don't think it's something that we do that regularly. And she was saying as women, we need to be um, engaging with women who are different ethnicity to ourselves or, you know, if we are able-bodied, engaging with disabled women and asking, how does this affect you? 
So if you're studying something in the Bible or if there's a situation going on, not just assuming that everyone has the same perspective as you Mm. and actively asking that question of how does this affect you and recognizing that there's difference there and wanting to hear and and actually listening to the answer I think is probably really important rather than just (laughs) getting defensive about whatever they say. Yeah I was thinking about the Hagar stuff that we've heard recently you know how how different that is if you're a black woman Um, and um, I'm reading a, a book at the minute which is all about reading the Bible from uh, a black woman's perspective. And that is incredible, absolutely incredible. It's just opening my eyes to all sorts of things that I'd never seen before. It's called, it's got a fancy title. It's called Womanist Midrash. And it's by a woman called Wilda Gaffney. It had been, it had been um, recommended to me by a few friends. Um, it's not, it's not as highfalutin as it sounds. Um, well worth, <laughs> well worth a read. And well, and she mentioned womanism again, didn't she? So that's fantastic yeah. to have even more context to that and um, a, another sort of definition of it as well. And I love that when she was describing womanism, it um, obviously started out and, and generally is from the perspective of, um, well, started out African-American women, but, you know, black British women, black women or women of colour. And then the way she talked about it, she talked about um the global experience of women of colour, but also marginalised women, disabled women. It's so, so broad as well. Um, and I think for anybody who considers themselves to be a Christian feminist, uh, and often that is white women, as we've discussed, it's really, really important to be reading womanist literature as well mm-hmm. and um, looking at those perspectives and listening to that I think like you're doing Alison yeah yeah I mean I was I was um I was really struck but when she said about it's womanism isn't about just about color but it's about disability and and those who are marginalized and I thought so my thought my my next thought was well hold on a minute then we all need to be womanists because actually if you're talking about uh inclusion and equality for all and feminism ex- doesn't include that we've we've got a problem so either we need to redeem feminism or we need to just have one title and actually work for the same things because I thought oh my goodness you know uh, if you're a Christian feminist and you're not seen as somebody who includes all all those people who are marginalized we have a problem we're not doing something right but I wonder whether there is something important about having a title and a space that is separate from white women as well. Because mm-hmm. if we just say, oh, well, then we should all be womanist, then, and all white women then move over into that space, we'll just take over that space as well. <laughs> good, good point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, very good point. That is a really good point. I never know. I, I find it, it's a, it's the same with the idea of women only spaces, isn't it? And, um, and people saying, well, we shouldn't have women only spaces or men only spaces. We should, everyone should be able to inhabit all spaces. And actually there are, there is something important about having women only spaces, but then are we as open about the idea of men only spaces? Is it that the marginalized group needs to have a safe, safe space that is their own, Mm. um, and not inhabited by the majority or the oppressive group yeah um so i think that's right i think it's a really good point i'm just babbling though no, no, <laughs> I, I know i think that's a really helpful i think that's a really helpful point i think uh, i think you're quite right there thanks <laughs> i liked um i liked her question again another question that we should be asking in churches is where are the women of color and that's I wrote down that's not just physically where are the women of colour, although definitely that needs to be asked in churches where it's majority white congregation and leadership, but also where are the women of colour in the Bible when we're reading it? Do we actually refer to women of colour explicitly? Um, Where are the women of colour in the references that are made during sermons 
you know, I, I'm quite used to thinking, oh, that preacher only referred to men in their sermon. Where are the women? But it needs to go broader than that. Where are the women of colour as well? Yeah. Um, yeah. Have I told you about the time I was in a house group once and I said, uh, yeah, well, of course, nobody in the Bible is white. And one of the people in there was just like, you could see her face was like, you're what? <laughs> 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 which, which takes us on to her book actually because the thing about St George was really interesting I hadn't known that this idea that there are all these people who use St George's flag as a almost a white supremacist banner um are waving a flag of somebody who was Middle Eastern or of Middle Eastern heritage and um yeah. We just don't talk about it. I, I was so excited that she said that they've been asked to do something for schools, yeah. um, for children. Because actually, you and I, Alison, we're set in our ways. We're not, we're not going to change very easily. But kids <laughs> need to be taught this stuff really early. And then there's some hope, I think, for the next generation and the one after that. So that's really exciting that they're doing yeah, something yeah. for schools. Absolutely. I mean, the whole thing about the book not having any pictures for me was really sad because that, you know, so actually if they can get some pictures for the school children that show um, the saints with the proper skin colour rather than, as I describe it in the thing, whitewashed, that would yeah. really help. I remember, going back to St George, I remember going to Barcelona when I was oh, a teenager and I remember finding out that St. George is their patron saint yeah, as well. And that's the first time that I'd realised that (laughs) there are loads of countries where St. George is their patron saint. And I just thought to myself, what? We can't have the same patron saint. That doesn't make sense. And they can't have the same flag as us. Like, that's confusing. They can't use that flag. And and (laughs) and I I realised how... The idea of saints being white or picturing them as white and then being white in our stained glass windows and all of that kind of thing really does feed into a sense of white superiority, doesn't it? Even if we don't realise it. And then when we find out that that saint either was Middle Eastern or is the saint of different countries for different reasons, that feeling of discomfort actually tells us something about our attitudes which isn't right <laughs> I really love seeing um be, seeing artwork done by people in other countries and they make the biblical characters look like people from their country so you, you get some um nativity scenes done by Japanese artists where everybody looks Japanese and they weren't Japanese any more than they were white British but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there is no reason why that shouldn't be shouldn't be there but I, there, there's something really beautiful about seeing Jesus as a Japanese baby or yeah. you know a Nigerian baby or uh, <laughs> you know wherever and so yeah I am um, about well, I don't know years ago now I was speaking to somebody who grew up in India and um, so her skin was was black, actually the colour of her skin, because it wasn't white. Because growing, growing up in India, they thought the best skin colour was white. And I was appalled when she told me this, absolutely appalled. I said, that, that, that's just not, it's just not right. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I showed her, I Googled and showed her a picture of that. You know, you've seen that picture of Jesus, which is kind of the nearest to what they think he might have looked like. No, yeah. Well, there is, there is. If you Google it, there is one. And, of course, his skin is dark brown. And she, and she she started crying when I showed it to her. And and I started crying because it was just so lovely. I'm like, you know, you're, you're beautiful. Your skin, my skin's white, your skin's black. It, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't matter. But it was such a shock that she, because of the oppression of the white British people in her country, she thought that... And I guess society thought that that black skin wasn't a good thing. I was horrified. I was that. I think that was the first time it really hit me how how awful uh, we have been as a as a nation to other people. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which is why books like um, Sharon's are so important, I think. And being able to see the reality of um, the diversity of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Because it can be very easy when all of the stained glass windows, even in different countries, are white. Um, it can be easy to forget the diversity that there is in the church. The, the majority of Christians are not white. No. And yet, in the UK, you could be easily fooled into thinking that that was the case. Yeah. Um that's right. Yeah, which is disgusting, really. I loved what she said about moving beyond guilt, though. Mm. I thought that was such a um, positive and productive attitude that guilt paralyzes people and you can't get anywhere if somebody's just stuck in guilt. And so what she wants is a discussion between people for people to be, what was it she said? Conviction rather than guilt. Yeah. I really liked that. What did you think? Yeah, I, I was really struck by that. The need to have conversation. And to be a, an advocate as well, I think, for for people to speak up where we see injustice in any form. Because I, in the same way I think it's exhausting to be a woman, often... It's all, it must be even more exhausting to be a black woman or a black man who, you know, is, is treated unfairly. And actually, we need to be people who, who listen and try and understand. And my goodness me, I get it wrong and I will continue to get it wrong. But please, God, I have the grace to listen and to be corrected and to, and to try and get it right in the future. Mm. We'll have got it wrong just in this discussion. That was. <laughs> I know. I'm. Just, I'm thinking that as we're talking. I'm thinking. Oh my goodness. We will have said something so patronising and bad. And please, God, forgive us. Yeah. I was also struck about her stuff about the the Archbishop apologising for the Windrush affair. Now, I remember talking to someone, a different person, whose parents came here. They were invited to come and work here in the whenever it was fifties. And they got here and they went to church like they did at home and they just were told that they weren't wanted. I mean, how shocking is that? She talked about the shack. Yeah, I haven't read the shack. It oh. sounded like you have. <laughs> Can you tell me about it? <laughs> she rhymes. She, well, all I know about the shack is, and I think people have had enough time to read it for spoilers, that there are... The guy goes into a shack and meets God in three persons. Yeah. And that God the, well, it's God the mother in this case, isn't it? Yes. Is a black woman. Is uh, that right? She is so cool. <laughs> she is just excellent. So she's a black woman for most of it. At one point she becomes father. Okay. So so she changes because obviously God is neither male nor female, can be anything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so at the beginning, though, when when uh, the character meets God, as we, we would call God the Father, it God is a as a black woman, and she is so cool. She's so hysterical. You definitely must read the book. The book is traumatic and and wonderful, absolutely wonderful. You might want to, oh, I don't know, it's a bit difficult to say. You might not want to read it when you've got small children, actually. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe wait a few years but it is, it is a fabulous book highly recommended mm. it opens up your concept of who god is and how god works um completely mm. well she said something as well when she was talking about her image of god and in the last couple of episodes, Alison, you've put me on the spot and asked me to define words, <laughs> which I think is mean. So I'm going to do the same to you now. She talks about anthropomorphizing God and yeah. how we're, oh, we're encouraged against anthropomorphizing God. What does anthropomorphizing mean, please? It just so happens that I've looked it up. So 
<laughs> oh, I wanted to put you on the spot. No, I would have gone. Um, well, I'd, I'd be trying to work it out from the um, from the Latin, Latin <laughs> or Greek, well, whatever it is. Anyway, it's um, it's giving human characteristics or behaviour to a god or an animal or an object. So it, it's making trying to make things that aren't human human, basically. Which I guess we do a lot. Yeah. yeah. The words we use for God. Yeah. Father and mother and all of those kinds of things. Yeah, because our language is so limited. Is there anything else that we need to talk about? Her idea of saying that we should not be defined through external images when she was talking about the biggest issue affecting Christian women mm. um, and that having a clear idea about our identity is so important. I thought that was really interesting and challenging, isn't it? I don't know if, I I think it's true of men as well, but we all have so many external images around us telling us what we should be like and look like and act like and getting any sense of your identity separate from those things is very, very difficult. I don't know if you agree with that yeah I think I do I think for a lot of people their identity is from what they look like I'm constantly surprised by the number of people who have body image issues which which is huge isn't it absolutely huge I think it's really sad that we don't know how to love ourselves as we are Mm. yeah once I love that she said that we need to resist all of that in the church as well. And she said, she said that we need to inhabit roles of reconciliation and peace, but that we also need to be, and her word was disruptive. Yeah. And I liked that encouragement <laughs> to be disruptive, uh, which is not something that we're often encouraged to do. I can't imagine you being disruptive, Grace. I would do it in a very quiet way. <laughs> Excellent. I say that, but look, you've done the podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Again, not- against my will originally. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's disruptive. Yeah, I think. It's doing something different. <laughs> oh dear. Going back to the, the shack and the uh, black female god, I was yeah. struck when she was talking about it because I'd only ever thought of it as wow she's a woman that's fantastic when I read the book but how much more affirming it would be if I was a black woman Mm. it'd be even better I mean I just thought that's fabulous but it'd be even better yeah Um, yeah. and that's great we need more stuff like that yeah definitely is that it then are we we done for today I think we might be yeah first lockdown podcast to success (laughs) (laughs) technologically anyway if actually is records, yeah, that's brilliant. That's true. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recovering God podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter at Recovering God, on Instagram, Recovering underscore God, or contact us by email at recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com.